Thank you for downloading episode 48 of the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. On this episode, like most episodes, I'm speaking with three different people who are doing big things who are all really wonderful people to speak with. And those are Ed O'Brien, Roger Joseph Manning Jr., and Youngblood. First up is my interview with Ed O'Brien. Ed's day job is being the guitarist of one of the biggest rock bands of the last few decades, Radiohead. But Ed finally put out his first solo album in 2020, and it's called Earth. He put it out under the sort of alias or moniker EOB. We spoke about that, the wonderful musicians that played on this album, and other things. And this one was originally posted online in video form if you want to check that out on YouTube. Ed was a pleasure to deal with. I was very intimidated coming into this one because that's Ed from Radiohead. Um, I've been a fan of that band for so many years and quickly I figured out he's such a pleasant, pleasant guy. This one was recorded in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, so I got him in his home setting and really I do hope to have the opportunity to speak with Ed again in the future. So yeah. when in the process of making the album did the Earth album title come about? Um, well, I called it The Pale Blue Dot, which was penned by Carl Sagan. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's to accompany a photograph that was taken by Voyager 1A spacecraft of the planet in 1990. And it's the furthest, it's a photo, it's the furthest photo taken of the Earth. And it's this tiny pale blue dot. And Carl Sagan wrote these incredibly beautiful words that accompanied this image along the lines of, this is our home, this is us, this is, uh, you know, this is it. So it was all about the bigger picture. And it was, it's also like a sort of a call, Carl Sagan's words are really very beautiful, but they're also like a call for us to wake up, to realize the bigger picture here. You know, rather than the drama of our own lives that we all get caught up in naturally, but there's a bigger thing going on. We are living on this sphere, you know, uh, orbiting around this sun in this vast space called the universe. We need to sort our shit out. In the best of ways. And- yeah. And it really, and, and, you know, and it, for me, it was like, a, it was like, it was exactly what I was feeling. You know, we, there's, a, there's an existential question to, I felt it very strong the last 10 years. What are we doing? Why do we keep on building these aircraft carriers when we should be sorting out how we, how we can live in harmony and respect to the, the planet and with other, with, you know, the planet and all its plants and all its animals and also with one another. And Shangri-La, if you can take a compliment here, great, great, great album opener. It really sets the tone for the album. Did you know outright that that was going to be the opener when you were writing the song? 
No, I didn't know outright, but I, when, when the song, when we recorded the song, I was just like, I said to Flood, I said, it's got the right energy, the right kind of, you know, draws you in. Um, yeah, I, I kind of had a very strong sense of that being the album opener. And you played most of the instruments on the album, some great cameos I'd like to ask you about, but I noticed that you didn't play drums. Do you not play drums? I don't play drums. I'm a crap drummer. I love, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty fine tambourine player, percussionist <laughs> and shaker. I love that. But as for a drummer, no, I'm hopeless. And how did you wind up with Nathan East on the album? I'm very familiar with his credits. I mean, to say the least, Phil Collins' Easy Lover was his song. Yeah. Well, Nathan and Omar Hakim, who also played. Yes. They were the rhythm section uh, for uh, Daft Punk's Random Access Memories album. And when I was demoing this record, that came out. And I saw this footage of them when they played the Grammys. And there's the footage of the rehearsal the day before. And, you know, there's the robots. And they're playing Get Lucky and there's Pharrell. And there's Nile Rogers and there's Stevie Wonder. And, you know, we know all about them. They're all incredible. And I'm like, who's that rhythm section? That's familiar. It's Nathan East and Omar Hakim. And, and for me as a musician, when I, when, I, when I was demoing, I was just like, well, that's the kind of, you know, you, 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 you die for rhythm sections like that. I mean, they're, they're just so, they're, they're, they're so unique. So when I was, um, when I was dreaming it all up, they were, they were, they were, they were my dream rhythm section. And then a, a couple of years later, I was out on tour with Radiohead and I got to meet Daft Punk's manager. And I talked to him and he said, they're great. He said, do you want me to put you in touch? I'm sure they'd be interested in collaborating. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. So I end up having a great conversation with Nathan and, and with Omar separately. And in the fall of 28, 2017, they, they come over to Wales and, and we all get to work together for, for about three weeks. Now, the name Flood came up. He's made so many albums that people hear on a daily basis, whether or not they know that Flood did them. But when you're in a room with Flood, do you call him Flood? Yeah, of course. His, <laughs> his, his wife calls him Flood. His wife calls him Flood. What was the genesis of you meeting Flood in the first place and saying, hey, you're going to do my album? Well, I didn't say, hey, you're going to do my album. Um, it starts at the school gates. Our kids at the same school. Ah. 2013. I, uh, I'm dropping my son off, my daughter off, his son and my daughter in the same year at school. Mm -hmm. And we're in the cloakroom taking, hanging up our coats for our kids. You know, they're little ones. They're only, they're only eight or something. And uh, I say to him, I know who he is, and I never met him, but I said, listen, I just want to say I love Holy Fire by Foles. I think it's a fantastic album. Mm -hmm. And our wives knew one another. Our wives were friends. They were trying to sort out the, the, the food that was very bad at the school. They're part of this group of mums who are trying to make sure the, the, the school fed the kids better food. Right. It's improved since then, which is good. And we became friends. And I never asked him outright to produce. What happened was that I needed some good counsel about these demos that I'd made. And he was a mate. And I knew we felt music in the same way. My dream ticket was 
that he would produce it, but I didn't want to be presumptuous. So I, I said, listen, can I play this stuff? See what you think. And we went, I went to a studio in, in Wilston and after about four songs, he sort of turned around and he said, do you want me to do this with you to produce? I, that's, that's the dream. That's the dream ticket for me. So it starts with the kids. <laughs> that's the old cliche that if the wives are friends or the kids are friends, then you're allowed to be friends as well. Totally. <laughs> and, and the album came out under the moniker EOB. Was that a long time nickname for you? I asked that because people call me by my initials, but I'd imagine it, that's the case with you and hence this album. Only, only when I was actually, when I was a little kid from about, about the age of seven or eight, you know, at the school that I went to you used to have to initial. I remember on the, the woodwork, you used to put your initials. So I put EOB and the teacher used to call me EOB. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, no, I just didn't want to go out under the moniker of Ed O'Brien. I wanted to go out something that was a little bit more, perhaps a little bit more abstract, something that was, could be a bit more of an umbrella for future collaborations rather than it just my name. It's like it could be, I mean, you know, a record is a collaboration, whether it, you, you know, you're the sole songwriter. Anyway, it's a collaboration with other musicians and, 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 other, and, and your, studio stuff, your studio crew as well. So, yeah, I, I, I wanted it to be more, 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 more collaborative seemingly, which it is. Well, three quick questions, being mindful of your time and the time allotment here. And the first one is, in your career at this point, you've played every damn arena and festival and stadium possible, blah, blah, blah. But when is it that you stopped worrying about, is this a hit song? Is this, are people going to like this and said, I'm going to be fine with my career for the rest of my life? Was there a moment like that for you? Um, no, I think, I mean, I don't think... I mean, the hit song thing, we were very lucky with Creep. So it wasn't really about, you know, having a, a hit song. It's more to do with about, it's when do you stop worrying? And that's, that's a big thing. I don't know. I think that happens gradually. I think that it, it, it's, it sort of, it's, it sort of happens by osmosis, really. It kind of just happens. I mean, I... I'd say about the touring was the first thing. You know, touring could be quite full on back in the day. And it wasn't until we started touring in Rainbows that it started to change. And then the King of Limbs tour, uh, the start of it was, was amazing until the accident happened. And I think you just sort of, it's a process of letting go and not worrying and trusting. Um, so yeah, I think it's, there's never one moment that you think, oh, it, it's, you know, doing what you do requires focus and integrity. And, and they're very different. When you're young, you sort of also think that you have to be controlling. And you no, know, you can have, you can be focused and have integrity, but you don't need to worry and be in control. You can also let things be. So it's just, I think maybe it's, the, it's an age thing, really. Hmm. In the best of ways. And yeah. then with being cooped up for this long, we talked about it started in March for you, fortunately, and you're doing better. Is there a TV show or a movie that's really gotten you through these times, a big discovery for you? No, I haven't really watched anything. I've been, um, I've, uh, I've watched one film, literally one film, and, 
because uh, it's my birthday last week. Uh, and it, it's being there by Peter Sellers, with Peter Sellers, directed by Hal Ashby, which is such a great film that I introduced the kids to. Um, I, I kind of, um, I'm lucky because we have access to being out here because we've got a garden, a large garden. So um, I've also been ill. And when you're ill, you don't really want to, I've, I've had the virus. So you don't, I don't really want to watch TV when I'm ill. I kind of, makes me feel worse so I tend to read or just I've done a bit of reading um but I've done a lot of interviews <laughs> sure and hence my luck on that end so <laughs> in closing Ed uh any last words for the kids uh you know good luck stay safe be well you know observe the lockdown and be kind to one another be kind to yourself and be kind to one another I think it's really important always thank you so much for your time here keep up the greatness and really thanks for the decades of great music thank you darren Hope to see you in new york eventually yeah thank <laughs> you for your time darren cheers next up is my interview with roger joseph manning jr or roger manning jr for short Roger is one of the founders of the band Jellyfish, a very, very influential band to not just the power pop genre but really just any rock musician with pop sensibilities, I would say. Roger has done plenty more than Jellyfish in the past few decades. He's a very in-demand session player. He's played keyboards and percussion and sang on so many hit records that you've heard and not realize it's him. Like, as it came up in our interview, All the Small Things by Blink-182, the keyboard part that comes in towards the end of the song, that's him playing that. He's played on songs by Green Day, Beck, Morrissey, if we spoke about that, and more importantly, his new EP under the moniker The Licorice Quartet, which he did with Tim Smith and Eric Dover, also of Jellyfish. Their EP is called Threesome Volume 1. Roger also opened up about a quirky thing I'd heard about him, eating raw. He does not eat raw vegan anymore, but he explained why he did in the first place. I think you're going to like this one. Hi, it's Darren for your 5.30 Eastern interview. Still a good time? Yeah, we're on. How's it going? It is great here or as great as it can be during this pandemic. What about you? Are you in L.A.? Uh, yeah, correct. Uh-huh. And are they keeping you pretty busy with doing interviews all day? Oh, uh, this week for sure. Um, but no, I mean, they, they're, they're scattered. I've, I've got plenty of other stuff to do. <laughs> keep, keep me busy uh, in not only doing whatever I'm doing musically, but making sure the uh, as many people as possible know about this Licorice Quartet project. Right. Now, Licorice Quartet, the roots of it, from my reading, go back two to three years beyond you knowing everybody for years before that. But when did you know that this was going to be an EP and not just doing some gigs every now and then or jamming? <laughs> well, for one thing, Tim lives in Atlanta and Eric and I live in Los Angeles. So jamming and weekend gigs are uh, not an option at all. And, uh, Really, um, we decided that the EP would be the best thing to pursue because uh, we didn't want to give the fans another album and then have them wait another three years before the stars aligned for us to get them more music. So it just seemed like a really practical way, much more logical way to like continue to have a greater frequency of offerings um, and not, you know, I, I think people can focus on four songs at once, frankly. Um, 
And this music uh, absolutely requires more attention than the average listener is used to being asked for. In putting four songs on this new EP, were there more than that recorded and you were already thinking about a second EP? Yeah, I mean, we have 12 songs that are basically finished. And, uh, we decided, though, to this could go on forever if we didn't zero in on something. So um, we finished up the four songs that you have in front of you that we believed were that sat well together, uh, were closest to being done. They just needed to be mixed. So we took care of that. And, uh, you know, in the months ahead, we're going to be finishing, putting the finishing touches on the uh, remaining eight tracks, getting them mixed, and do another two EPs over the next year. Was everything recorded in the same room or at least the same studio? No, uh, all over the place. So drums were done in one place and a lot of the instrumentation was done in a couple others and then a whole lot of it was done individually in our respective recording environments at home as well. And I like that KTEL style TV commercial you did it. Uh, who came up with the concept? Oh, uh, let's see. I believe that was a friend of Tim's. Uh, who had come up with the concept, and then uh, our management and a, another fan, actually, who's been super kind uh, to offer up some of his video editing skills, um, help put it all together. Well, it's impressive that you oh, have wow. that, plus a music video, plus some album trailers. Was all that done by the fan friend? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, it's very collaborative, so some of it comes from us, some of it comes from our fan base. Uh, we have a lot of I mean, even since the inception of this project, we've had a lot of fans, uh, some of whom are musicians, um, some of whom aren't. They're just artistic people and everything in between. Uh, some really savvy business people. You know, just very excited to help us realize this dream and been bending over backwards and cutting us a lot of favors. Uh, it's just been so cool to everybody rise to the occasion. Any idea if the EP that you're going to put out next is going to be called Volume 2, or is that still being determined? Yeah. Threesome Volume 2, uh-huh, for sure. Great. So there's so much else I want to ask you about, and I'll, I'll just go into that. The first thing is reading liner notes uh, on my favorite albums. That's how I first learned about you. I learned about you from playing all the additional keyboards and percussion on albums, not from Jellyfish. Is that a common thing for you, that people discovered you that way? No, it's mostly been from the associations with Jellyfish and Beck and uh, Imperial Drag. Um, because uh, unlike you and I, most people don't care who played the bass guitar or played the tambourine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, very few people uh, approach me based on outside work like that. But it's always flattering when they do, and I'm recognized for that because I pour my heart and soul into those projects just as much now i remember the jerry finn albums were where i first saw your name and that was only a year or two after jellyfish's spilled milk album was that when it started to take off for you as a session player yeah i had always uh well a lot of my inspiration were session players growing up because like you i was fascinated by who did what and why and how that all came to be and it was different for every record you know, even though there were like L.A. wrecking crews and stuff, there was a whole variety of ways that people ended up on each other's albums. Um, and I simply didn't know what was involved in getting that happening. And uh, in 1997, 
uh, Imperial Drag had just disbanded. And uh, Jerry Finn and this band he was working with reached out to me to see if I was interested in playing keyboards on their project. And they told me, well, Jerry told me, that the band had been a fan of Jellyfish and stuff, and they were a guitar-based band. So when it came time to make the record with Jerry, he said, well, we definitely need keyboards. And they, and they said, you know, it'd be so great to get that guy from Jellyfish, but we can't ask him. And Jerry said, well, I know Jellyfish. Why can't, I mean, I know of them. Uh, why wouldn't you, why can't we get him? And they said, well, because you don't ask people who, who are in bands to play on your record. They, that's not what they do. They're in their own band. And Jerry said, well, that's ridiculous. People who are in other people's bands play on other people's records all the time. You just have to ask. And he goes, here, let's find out his number. We'll reach out to him. And the worst thing is that he'll say, no, thank you. I'm not interested. But you got to find out. Well, when I got that call, I couldn't have been more excited because I, I didn't know Jerry. I didn't know the band at all. But I said, here's somebody, here's a group of people who paid enough attention to the keyboard work on those records to think enough of me to call me up. Uh, and I was just blown away. Um, and I'd never done like an official session like that for others, for strangers. Obviously I've been in the recording studio hustling and doing what's needed there, but it was for my own music with my collaborators. And, um, I was very, very nervous. Um, but it couldn't have gone better. And Jerry couldn't have been a better first producer to work for. He was so easygoing, even though he's very meticulous. Um, and it was just a fantastic experience. And then shortly after that, I joined the Beck band and Beck was one of the biggest buzzwords on the planet at the time. And there were a lot of producers who were interested in the Beck sound. So me and a lot of the other guys in the band got offered session work, uh, in a way that none of us had known of before. Uh, and it was very, very exciting. Was that first band Coward? Correct. Okay. When, when you're from Long Island, you know the Long Island bands that got record deals. So yeah. I pieced that one exactly. together. And usually when I see Roger Manning Jr. played on a record, it says keyboards and maybe additional vocals or percussion, that kind of thing. But it's not clear what you did. For the people that are going to be reading and or hearing this, is that you playing the keyboards on the Blink-182 song, uh, All the Small Things? Uh, correct. Yeah. So that's one of those things where tens of millions, if not hundreds of mi millions of people have heard your work. Are you often in like a CVS or a Walgreens and hear that and you go, ah, oh, that's me? Uh, well, certainly with those bigger name bands, that does happen. Uh, it never happens with Jellyfish, <laughs> which is fine. But yeah, sure. no, I've, I've, I'll never forget, actually. So when the Blink thing happened, uh, I was familiar with them, but I wouldn't say you can call me a, a fan. I wasn't like, uh, I was just... I was just peripherally aware of them. I knew they were starting to get some definite attention in the K-Rocks of the world. And uh, Jerry reached out to me and, I, and I, you know, Jerry's like, I don't care what he has on the table. I will play with him. I will look for any excuse to be in a room with him and make music because he was just that amazing uh, producer and person. So we did the Blink stuff and, you know, the sessions went well. The guys were great. Got along with them. Fantastic. And uh, still talked to Tom. Uh, to this day. Um, but after the session was over, it was like any session, you just go on with your life. Well, that album turned out to be 10 times bigger for them than any record they'd had before or that anybody I think really thought it could be. Um, and I remember being in my car and hearing the song come on. And I was like, right, this is the, this is the album I did with Jerry with 
with these guys, you know, three or four months ago now, whatever it was. And I remember having this feeling, like you just said, which was, oh, wait, compared to everything else I've played on in recent times, uh, this is being heard by more people. This is a, a, you know, an actual hit that um, I have a small contribution on. And that was a very, uh, you know, novel and curious uh, feeling and sensation and just awareness because it was so new. And it was super cool. Uh, it, was, it was great to know that something that I had worked on for so long, cultivating and perfecting, was of use to somebody in a way that helped them achieve their dreams. I mean, it's just this, this great communal collaborative thing. And, uh, you know, Blink was definitely one of those early big bands that I was invited to work with. Exactly. That discography just keeps growing with major, major artists. So another thing that I know about you through our mutual friend, Linus Dotson, is that you eat raw. What is it that got you into raw foods to begin with? Well, I did. I was a raw vegan uh, or I ate raw vegan for eight years in the 2000s. And it was a I I had been since 1993 experimenting with all kinds of health modalities uh, in an attempt to uh, heal out of a variety of uncomfortable physicalities. I wasn't dying of anything, fortunately, but uh, it was pretty uncomfortable in my body and uh, wasn't getting the information or care that I felt I needed uh, from the regular medical community. So I began exploring the wide, the wild, wild west of alternative medicine and diet, uh, and the raw vegan eight-year detour was just one of many experiments I conducted. I call I called it guinea pigging on myself uh, because <laughs> you know you're just you're just basically auditioning stuff. Uh, and um, like anything in life that you want to master or get good at, it requires tons of information and great wisdom and knowledge. Um, and like a lot of things, you can learn a lot about one area, but you might not have it all together in the other. So even, even studying as a musician, right, you might uh, have your specialty. Um, you might know all there is to know about um, guitar technique and uh, guitar uh, sound processing with foot pedals and amplifiers, but you might not know the first thing about writing music. You never put pen to paper and you don't know how to take all your awesome music and put it down on manuscript for somebody else to play or to get your ideas across, right? That would be like you're, you're imbalanced in that respect. It's not wrong. I'm not saying it right. diminishes the, the person as a musician. I'm just saying uh, there's, a, there's a lot to learn if you are a competent, well-rounded musician. Well, there's a lot to learn if you're a competent, well-rounded um, healthy, physically healthy individual on, on a physical plane. I'm not talking about spiritual because that's a whole other conversation, uh, which also plays into total health, in my opinion. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, that, that, that scene, it was a bit of a scene in L.A. at the time. Uh, um, certainly Santa Monica, Venice, uh, it was, uh, there was a community of people who were thriving, uh, eating this way, uh, as well as doing some other things um to manage their health and uh it made a lot of sense to me um and i pursued it and for the most part uh, it served me very well um 
until about five, six years in. And I always said to myself, because I'd been vegan before, uh, and I'd tried all kinds of things, and I was kind of like, well, I either, I either give this the old college try and do it right, or what's the point? In other words, I really wanted to test it. And you can't just do that like a lot of folks do with a three-month fad diet or something. Um, yeah. You know, the, the body has a lot of reserves. You can abuse the hell out of the body before it really starts telling you if something's not serving you, it starts telling you, Hey, you, you, you've worn me out. We're, we're all out of reserves. Enough is enough. Right. I mean, somebody can smoke for years and then maybe around year nine or 10, they might develop some lung issues, but those first four, nine or 10 years are like, I can smoke. What's the, I feel good. makes me feel good. I love it. I don't see, there's no downside. And they would not have been experiencing any downside. That's, that's, you know, the, the body's incredibly resilient. Uh, more in more ways than we give it credit. So uh, about seven or eight years into the diet, I started getting some signals from my body that were telling me, uh, hey, listen, pal, you better take some inventory because this is, well, you've created, in your attempt to do your body a lot of good, you've created uh, some imbalance and some things started to show up that were alarming to say the least. And uh, I took the rest of that journey and figured my way out and, um, conducted the experiment and I'm not interested in, uh, obviously <laughs> adapting that for any other part of my life. Uh, I stopped doing that in 2010. Noted. Well, two quick questions and then you are a free man. And the first one is oh. as an authoritative guy, is it Moog or is it Moog? Uh, technically it's Moog because, uh, from the horse's mouth, Bob said that, uh, the name has, uh, Scandinavian, roots or whatever the epitomology, whatever the roots of words are. And, um, uh, but his wife was a school teacher and all the kids would make fun of her name because she taught elementary school and they'd say, you know, they'd call her a cow and say moo like a cow and blah, blah, blah. So they decided really early on, let's just tell everybody, let's change the pronunciation to Moog. So for the duration of the company, when he finally started the company and became more of a commercial entity, it was Moog for all intents and purposes. But technically, it's pronounced Moog. So, uh, for example, they had a keyboard called the Rogue. That was one of their models. The whole point was it for, you know, for it to rhyme. So it was the Moog Rogue. Um, and, uh, but obviously, the temptation is to call it Moog. That's what it looks like. So for everybody that they told no, actually, it's Moog, and this is the registered trademark name, and so forth. You've got you had ten more people just calling it Moog, so it, it became hard to manage. Um, and I think you know, towards the end of the seventies, he was just like, "Call it whatever the hell you want." <laughs> we give up. <laughs> well, praise to you for the Moog cookbook. We'll call it that. And in closing, Roger, any last words for the kids? Oh man, just uh, colossal. Thank you. Um, we are in awe that the fans have stuck with this uh, for so many years, including all the dry spells where, where we were busy off doing other things that weren't, you know, original music. And um, I was happily surprised when I put my solo albums out in the 2000s and then eight years later, finally glamping in 2018. And now, I mean, uh, you know, there's no shortage of material that we have for people in the years ahead here. Um, it's always 
in the works and I'm very happy that they're still as eager and excited to support us and be a part of this exchange. And that's the, that's the good thing about some of these internet options for sharing music with uh, your fans. Uh, there's a lot of experiences and fan incentives. They can get, they can get involved in a way that you just didn't see in the seventies and eighties. And um, so that's, that's very exciting. And uh, I'm glad we can all share that together at this time. Well, definitely looking forward to Volume 2. So thank you so much for your time and hope to see a live show at some point. Oh, thank you so much. And I appreciate the exposure and the interview. Thank you. Last but not least is my interview with Youngblood. Yes, that Youngblood. The UK artist that won all those awards in 2019 and early 2020. That guy who sold millions of singles. That young blood, he took the time to speak with me over video, and we spoke about his show, The Young Blood Show, which he launched in response to everyone being kind of quarantined and needing entertainment. His latest single, Weird, where his attitude comes from, having success at such an early age. And this is one of the most entertaining interview experiences I've ever had. I've been doing this for over 20 years. I'm only in my late 30s, but kind of like Youngblood, I got my start early, obviously not as successful as he did so soon, but in doing hundreds, if not thousands of interviews, I've definitely lost count. This is one of the most memorable experiences I've had. This guy's a lot of fun. Anytime he wants to talk, he knows where to get me. I think you're going to enjoy this one as well. Hey, what's up, man? How are you? <laughs> Great in yourself there, Youngblood. I'm all right, man. I like your Wu-Tang t-shirt. That's cool. Thank you very much. Do, do I call you Youngblood, Youngblood? What's your preference there? Youngblood Dom. As long as it's not Dominic, because that's what my mum used to call me when I was in trouble. I don't want to get triggered right now. Whatever. Youngblood or Dom. Whatever you want. Well, congratulations on the Youngblood show taking off. Uh, kind of a viral instant hit. But how long was it for it coming up with the concept of it to having it live? Um, about 72 hours. Yeah, kind of mental. I mean, I remember we were going to go down to Argent Argentina first and um, to play some shows down at uh, Argentina, Brazil, Chile. Um, and the shows got cancelled. And I was like, there's no way I am letting this situation take away from the connection with my fan base. I was so buzzing to get on stage. I was like, I've been writing an album. I need to just rock and roll. You know what I mean? So I was like, right, okay, it's fine. Everyone remain calm. I want to put on a show. Everyone's like, what? I'm like, a show. And what started out as an idea in my bedroom, um, my fan base just blew up. Right. It was like, curl gasoline, just pour it on matches, more gasoline matches. And 72 hours later, I'm in a TV studio with five cameras, six dudes in hazmat suits, Free celebrity guests. I'm trying to be the punk rock Jimmy Fallon. So I was like, whoa, all right, sick. Well, you kind of answered the next thing I, I was going to ask, which is the show starts off with you at the desk, and then you say, "There's here's the song, and then you walk over and you perform, almost like a Jules Holland kind of setup. But is Jimmy Fallon your main talk show influence? And as I say, I love James Corden. I love, I literally love Jules, man. I love Graham Norton. I love Jimmy Fallon. Like, I mean, they're all, they're all pretty, pretty incredible. And you really do have a natural personality for being a host like that. Was that something that you wanted to do before your music career took off? 
Um, I just like performing, I think. I just like putting on a show and having some energy. So, like, I mean, we just kind of turned the cameras on and everyone went, oh, wow, you're kind of good at this. And I was like, oh, am I? Sick. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, your latest single is weird, and I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But when I listen to your music, it's not clear to me if you start off as a metal guy, a punk guy, a hip-hop guy, or just liking everything. Which were you? Um, it was, I, I grew up on Britpop first because that's what was kind of fed down my throat. Do you know what I mean? I was force-fed Britpop, thankfully, because I love it. Um, but as I say, man, I just love music. It Because punk metal, hip-hop hit me in the exact same way. It was, I'm going to be who I want to be. I don't care what you think. And let's go. You know what I mean? And I was like, sick, that's amazing. So with my music, it's not about the genre. It's about, is it good? Does it connect people? Does it hit you in the face? And I'm like, yeah, baby. And I'll release it. <laughs> Did you ever have a producer, somebody try and hip you up to say the Beach Boys <laughs> or more things that are orchestral? Um, no, as I say, like literally on this next album, which is interesting, I met a guy called Chris Griotti. He's literally like a, a, a naughty wizard of music. He just, he, he allowed me to express myself with it. Like I love harmonies. I love Queen. I love the Beach Boys. I love the Beatles. I, I love Jeff Lynn. I love... David Gilmore, do you know what I mean? I love these rock and roll orchestrators and there's a lot of there's a lot of like like orchestration on this next record, which is interesting. Like we got to play a lot, like there's a lot of big, big seven part harmonies coming in and shit. It's gonna be cool. Yeah, yeah. It's mad. Wow. Was there's two opuses, there's two opuses on this album. And is uh guitar the first instrument that you picked up? Guitar was the first instrument I picked up, yeah, because of school of rock. Really? Jack Black, baby. Good influences yet again. <laughs> well, was the song King Charles your first ever uh, thing that you wrote, or is that just your first single? No, that was the first single. As I say, I, I was writing music all my life, and, but I think that was the first song I was proud of and that defined what I wanted to say. Like, I didn't want to be a singer. To me, there's a difference between an artist and a singer. An artist talks about the world, paints a picture, and connects to people a singer sings a song hmm. it doesn't mean anything do you know what i'm saying like and and we'll sing it in such a way that will potentially change lives but i didn't necessarily didn't want to do that I and mean, my voice isn't good enough to be honest so i was like all right cool i got i've got to look inside myself and i went down to london at 16 and I, all I was told was political kid in makeup ain't going to work. It's never going to get played on Radio 1. That's what <laughs> I, said. I was like, okay, all right. So, but when you're 16 and you hear some guy in a record company say that, you listen to him because all you want to do is do this for the rest of your life. And I got lost. But King Ch after like a load of that rubbish happening, I turned 18 and I just was like... Fuck yeah, I'm gonna sing what I want. And then King Charles came out, and then Marry Me came out, Polygraph came out, Tim Pan Boy came out, and then I've just not got off the train since. Yeah, the last few years have just been a whirlwind of singles and features and award show performances and all that. Had you been to the States or Canada before your career took off? Absolutely not. I was like, I was like, wow man, I mean Canada, Timmy Hughes is amazing. You know what I mean? And I was just like I just couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? Like, wow, we're playing in Toronto. Wow, we're playing in Montreal. They speak French here. That's crazy. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, wow, we're in Vancouver now. That's mental. Do you know what I mean? It's bloody cold, isn't it? You know, like in uh, Toronto. And it was, it was amazing. You know what I mean? I couldn't believe it.
And in these three years since King Charles, your career has, again, reached these levels that most people don't hit by the time that they're 40, even when they're 20-something years into the game. Do you have any things that have to happen for you to feel like that this was all worth it and all successful? Um, I think it's already happened, man. I've found a community of people that made me feel like it's all right to breathe. So all I want to do is keep growing that because there's a lot of people out there who feel like it's not all right to be who they are. And I just want to keep doing that and growing that and growing that. My all-time favorite dream thing was to be do, to do Milton Keynes Bowl in the UK because Green Day did it for Bolt in the Bible. And I fell in love with that venue and was just like, if I was to do that and if I was to have my family meaning my fan base, I call my family, there to celebrate something that we've done together and sing in fucking solidarity, then that would be just, I'd just be like, wow. <laughs> and you did it. So yeah. two quick questions, and then you are a free man. And the first one is, what is life like for you outside of entertaining people? Um, thinking about how I can entertain people. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm running around in my underpants, screaming at my team. Um, even when I'm having a, having a piss, I'm thinking, oh, what can I do next? Do you know what I mean? All the time entertaining. It's kind of like Liam Gallagher, but done right. So oh. <laughs> in closing, any last words for the kids? Um, I just want to say that I love you all. I know times are really bizarre and strange and weird right now, but if we remain together and remain unified, it's all going to be all right. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Keep up the great work and hope to see you live in New York soon. See you later, brother. See you, bro. Thanks. Paltrowcast. Thanks for checking out the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. Produced by V13 Media. Theme song by Steve Schiltz. Audio mixing by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Paltrowcast.